I was praying about what to teach, and I always hate being between books because if I just teach one thing, what do I teach? The Bible is ginormous. And what is God saying? And in the end, I can teach about what God is showing me. This one's for me, and maybe it's for you, because it's something that really encouraged me. And I need encouragement. Because life is hard to understand. I don't know why life is difficult. You know what I mean? Like just when you think it couldn't get worse, it gets worse. And it's hard to understand. And I find myself living in loops of misery. They just keep looping, keep on rolling. And it makes me weary. I think, you know, I'd like to change this, but I don't know how to do this. You know, we can get the impression that life is sort of compartmentalized. Here's the spiritual stuff over here, and everything adds up. Over here is the practical world where everything goes wrong. And God is omnipotent over here in the spiritual box, and he doesn't do a ding-dong thing over here where I need help. Have you ever felt that? What the Bible shows us is that God is not in a box. He's in the world, and... Everything in life is spiritual. Everything in life is spiritual. Therefore, the only solution to life is God. God changes things. And what he does is so fascinating because he works through weakness and inability. He does that to show that it's him at work. Somebody who's strong and intelligent sort of gets in his way. And people think, well, he's fabulous. He's Captain America. Duh. But I don't have a shield, and I didn't have that blue serum injected into me. So I'm more like Stan Lee. <laughs> I'm sure not Captain America. But the Bible shows us that anyone can experience God working through them because it doesn't depend on the person. It only depends on God. So what we're going to look at this morning is how God works through a helpless woman trapped in a loop of misery. Just goes on and on and on, and it loops and it loops and it loops. And he shows how he prevails. And he does it by humbling her greatly and then giving this humble woman grace. Are you guys interested in this?
Do you think you'd be interested? Okay. We could quit now. All right. So let's start in 1 Samuel. Look what it says here. Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah and his wife and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was, year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you eat? weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? All right. Here's Hannah, and she's the one who was stuck in this loop of misery. Now, the account begins with Elkanah, her husband. And what we learn from this is that he's an okay guy. But okay is not the same as godly. Because you notice, in verse 3, he goes up yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord in Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle of God first was when Israel came into the land. God caused his name to dwell at Shiloh. And so they set up the tabernacle of Moses there, and that's where you went to sacrifice. But you know, the law says you're supposed to be there three times a year. Elkanah goes once. So, that's okay. It's all right. Now, he loves his wife, Hannah, and that's okay. You notice that when he sacrifices, um, everybody gets a portion. That's because the sacrifice is known as the peace offering. It's the last sacrifice of the three. You have a sin offering, a whole burnt offering, and then the peace offering. And the sin offering is to take care of your sin. The whole burnt offering is to offer yourself up to the Lord. And then the peace offering, you offer your animal to the Lord. It's his, and now he invites you to sit at his table and have fellowship with him. So the Lord is sharing his food with you. And so you get to partake with the Lord. It's fellowship. Now, you notice that he gives, Elkanah gives Peninnah, sons and daughters, everybody gets a portion. He gives twice as much to Hannah because he loves her and because he feels bad for her because she's barren. She can't have children. 
All right? Now, he loves Hannah, but he really wanted children. Did you get that? So he married another wife, which is only okay. Now, you know, there are people in the Bible, a surprising number, who couldn't have children. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all three of their wives could not have children. And you know, these men prayed for their wives, sought the Lord. Well, Elkanah didn't do that. His solution was, uh, I guess I'll marry another wife. Now, he solved his problem on his own. But he also created bigger problems because Peninnah provokes Hannah and makes her break down in tears. And Elkanah is distressed, but he can't do anything because he's a little bit clueless. He goes, look, honey, you got me. Aren't I better to you than ten sons? And it's like, no, you're not. You know why? Because you just proved that having children is more important than love. Yeah, you love me, but you did marry her, didn't you? So he even proves himself wrong. Isn't that awful? The children really were the most important thing to him. Now that's the first part of this loop. The second part is Penina herself. Now she is an arrogant woman. And she perhaps resents being wife number two. And her big thing is playing what is called a zero-sum game. You've heard me refer to this before. And what this means is there can only be one winner, me or you, but both of us can't win. It's a competition. If you win, I lose. But if I win, you lose. And see, on this particular competition, Penina knows only she can win. Hannah loses before she starts, and Penina glories in this. And she plays this game, especially when it hurts Hannah the most. Going up to the house of the Lord. This is supposed to be the high time of the year. But for Penina, it's the low time of the year. Because Penina just pushes it in her face. You can't have kids. The Lord has closed your womb. He is against you. You are just this close to being cursed of the Lord. But look at me. I got sons and daughters here. And you know, Elkanah wants children. So guess what? I win and you lose. So runs this loop of misery. Penina provokes Hannah. Elkanah can't help. Hannah loses. She's provoked 
tormented and grieving. There's no out. There's no escape. And it goes on year after year. Did you notice that in verse 7? Year by year runs this loop. And it gets the worst just when it should be getting better. God! No, I hate this all. I hate Shiloh. I hate that stupid tabernacle. Now, if this went on forever, this would be hell, don't you think? Hell is a loop of misery. But this does not go on forever. In one particular year, Hannah comes to the breaking point. Look at verse 9. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. The breaking point is where the situation becomes crucial and it can go either way. Like in a disease, the crucial point, the breaking point, is either that the patient is going to get better or worse. It's a point where definite change happens. And here's Hannah, bitter in soul, other translations have greatly distressed, oppressed, sorrowful in spirit, grieving. This is the point where we come to and we say, I can't do this anymore. But Hannah does what she's never done before. In all these years of suffering, she has never done this. She's doing something different. There's a change here. She goes to the tabernacle of God and she pours out her soul to the Lord. That's what she says in verse 15. I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Now there's an explanation of what this means in several places in the Bible, but one of them is in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 6. And this is when Israel is returning to the Lord as an entire nation. This is what it says. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Now the context there is repentance and humbling oneself before the Lord. 
You know, they take this water that they've drawn, some bucket or container of water, and they pour it out on the ground. And you know what happens, right? The water kind of sits on the surface and then just kind of soaks in. Now try and pick it up again. Try to put that water back in the container. Can you do it? No, that water is gone forever. And that's what they're saying to God. You know what our situation is? It's so bad, it's like we poured it all out on the ground and we can't fix it. We can't get it back. It's out of our power. And they're pouring out their hearts to the Lord. And Hannah's got a full heart, doesn't she? Peninnah said this, and Elkanah said that. And I tried this, and I tried that, and you know what? Oh, here it all is, God. I'm pouring it out. So Hannah is humbling herself before the Lord. And she prays about this. If you will indeed remember me, and that means remember me for good. And stop forgetting me like you have been forgetting me. And if you make me a mother, I will mother a son who will do all your will. And, in, and as a matter of fact, she says, no razor shall come upon his head. That refers to a certain vow of dedication called the Nazarite vow. And if you wanted to dedicate your entire life to God for a specified period of time, you took this vow of being a Nazarite. And one of the things you were supposed to do was shave your head right at the very beginning. And then as long as you were a Nazarite, your hair grew. When the time came for your vow to be over with, and you weren't going to be dedicated, consecrated to the Lord in this way, you would shave all of that hair and burn it to the Lord. And what that means is, when you're a Nazarite, you can't drink anything that's made from grapes. No wine, you can't even eat grapes or touch them. And you're not to touch a dead body. It's such an interesting thing. And then your hair is considered a crown. And if you look at the whole picture, it's like being a person before the fall. You have nothing to do with death and nothing to do with anything that could cause you to fall, and you're wearing a crown. Now, when the time for your vow is up, then you cut all that off and burn it as an offering to the Lord. But you don't have that crown anymore. You can touch a dead body if you are into that kind of thing. But you're not that dedicated to the Lord. Now, she says... He will be utterly dedicated to you from the womb. He's going to be a Nazarite. And that means he exists to carry out your will. 
Now, she's not making a deal with God. Like, what do you say we make a trade here? You know, I want to be a mother. You want a guy who wants your will. So why don't we do a deal here? She's not talking about that. She's saying, if it's your will for me to be a mother, then as I am a mother, I will do the highest thing a mother can do. And that is, I'm going to raise a son completely for you to do all your will. And he won't deviate from it. He's going to be faithful to you all of his days. So this is complete submission to what God wants. And what she's saying really is, if you give me life, I'm going to give you life. Now this is a definite change in Hannah. Don't you think? I mean, we wouldn't be surprised to read, oh God, Give my arm strength. I'm going to hit her so hard, I break her jaw. Or how about God, kill her? Because if you do it, then I didn't do it, and you're just, and everything will be great. So why don't you kill her now? But it doesn't say that, does it? She's not thinking about all these things. She's thinking about you and me and what do you want and I am submitted to you completely. It really sounds like not my will, but yours be done. Now that's a definite change in Hannah. And then she gets confirmation that God has heard her prayer and will answer her. Now look what it says in verse 12. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now, somehow Hannah gets this confirmation that God has heard her prayer, that God's going to answer her prayer, and it's almost in spite of Eli. Because Eli, as we'll find out later in 1 Samuel, is a really funny duck. He's a clonk. I'm not even sure what the word clonk means, but he's one of them. 
he totally misjudges her. He's looking at her there in the tabernacle, and she's crying. She's come unglued. Her hair's a little bit messed up. You know how it is. Your face gets puffy when you're crying. And she's... You know, she's really distressed, and he thinks she's drunk. You know, how dare she, the very idea, drunk, here in the tabernacle. And he says, shape up, will ya? Just about blows it there. And then she says, no, I'm not drunk. I'm afflicted. I'm pouring out my soul to the Lord. Oh, well, never mind. Go in peace. Oops. Okay, uh, <clears throat> I knew that. Sure, good. Um, God bless you. You know, what a, how lame is that? So, you know, Eli is not the most spiritual guy that ever fell off the turnip truck. And yet something happens in Hannah to the point where she feels like God heard my prayer. Something has clicked. Now maybe you've experienced that before. That is an inward witness of the Holy Spirit that says, yeah, I've heard your prayer. It's going to be okay. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but that's happened to me several times in my life. All of a sudden, there's a good. And I think, wow, it's going to be okay. Do I know what's going to happen? No. But Hannah gets this inward witness, it's going to be okay. And she makes a word play. Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. That word for favor is the Hebrew word chen. And her name comes from that. Hannah. You ever heard Gil call his daughter? Hannah. That's because it comes from the word chen. And another word for favor is grace. That's Hannah's name in English, grace. And the, the word play is, up until now, grace has not experienced grace. But grace just now experienced the grace of God. That's the word play. Now, outwardly, her situation hasn't changed at all. But inwardly, Hannah expects good from God. Something good is going to happen. So she does another new thing. Did you notice that in verse 18? She went her way and ate. She goes back to that double portion that Elkanah always gives her and says, hey, I want that. And Elkanah goes, what? And Peninnah goes, what? What do you mean you want that? And she's chowing down, and Peninnah's going, what got into her? What is she happy for? Something's going wrong here. 
Can you imagine? And she finishes and goes, I'm done, let's go home. Wow, what got into you? So you know what happened is she poured out all of her affliction and all of her suffering to the Lord. And now she's having happy fellowship with the Lord. There's peace. And she's really enjoying it. And then we have the rest of the chapter, really quick. Verse 19. Then they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bulls, one ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted my, position, my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I have also lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. So, in the process of time, she conceives. She already knows it's a boy, even before she sees. No ultrasound in those days. But she already knows it's not a daughter. It's a son. Because that's what I asked for. Now, she has this baby, and she names him Samuel. They're using this name in that new uh, TV series about Jesus, The Chosen. And it's one of the uh, young rabbis, but his name is Shmuel. That's more properly the name because it's, it comes from Shem El. And that means name of God. She named him name of God. That's because she's compacting a lot into one name. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. All of that is in his name. And she takes time to fulfill her vow. 
She takes three years, and she's teaching this little boy who he is, why he exists. Do you know why your name is Shemuel? Name of God? Because I asked God for you. And God heard me, and he's gracious and he's merciful. Never forget that. He is so good. His name is wonderful. It's in your name. And all that God wants is good. So you're going to do everything that God wants you to do. That's who you are, my love, my sweetheart. That's why I love you with all my heart. And you're God's. And that's the best thing you could ever do. Anything else is piddly. So she loves this baby boy every day for three years. And then she finally takes him up to Shiloh and says, now I'm going to pay my vow. She brings the bull. She dedicates him to the Lord. She says, look it, here he is. And he really will follow the Lord all the days of his life. It's so interesting. You can read it in the rest of the book. Always doing what God wants, even when it's dangerous, when it might even get him killed. He does it. And it doesn't end there. That's the interesting thing. We find out that this whole book, it's more than just a woman or a son, because this son grows up and he restores the worship of God in Shiloh to purity. That affects the entire nation, and it exalts Israel, and at the same time, it takes care of the Philistines who have been oppressing Israel. So because of one boy, it's going to raise up an entire nation and decide the destiny of another. Could you believe that all of that is located in just this one little thing going on? And it means it's more than just one woman's crisis. It has to do with what God is doing in the whole world. That's what's going on. So, one man can change the course of nations. Because we see it written down here. Now, I find it interesting. In order to get a man who would do all of his will, God first had to get his mother. Because she is going to raise him right so that all the wickedness that's happening in Shiloh won't affect him. Eli's a clonk. His sons are worse. They're toxic. They're vile. And yet Samuel's going to go in there and because he's there, God is going to change everything from the inside out. But to get that man, he had to get his mom first. Do you know that God cares about mothers? More than anybody on the planet, God cares about mothers. So, this is about prevailing through God. 
And I say that because in chapter 2, which we will look at next week, it says in verse 9, He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength no man shall prevail. Now, prevail means to triumph. It means to be strong, to gain power and influence. And you gain it by being strong and superior. It means you win. But then Hannah wasn't strong, and she didn't have power, and she didn't have anything. She was helpless. She was beat down. She didn't know how to answer when Penina was making fun of her and pushing her face in it. She didn't have anything to say back. So no strength and no answers. How did she prevail? Not with her own strength, not with her own answers, but with God. Now see, this is the encouraging part. I want to learn how to prevail like that, don't you? To triumph, but not in your own strength, with God's strength. Like, isn't that the best? All of our strength, all of our intellect, all of our abilities, they're not enough. That's what God is saying here to every one of us. You will not prevail because of anything that you have. It doesn't count. What made the difference with Hannah, the definite change, was God. And I noticed that he also took away this zero-sum game from Peninnah. Isn't that interesting? Not by Hannah breaking Peninnah's jaw or fighting back, being a jerk back to Peninnah. That means Hannah would be the bigger jerk. And all you have to be is a bigger jerk than anybody, and you will win. Well, that's what the world says. But God wins by a completely different way. He completely ends the game. There is no more game. Penina has nothing more to say about Hannah being childless, because she's not childless anymore, and it's a miracle. So imagine Penina the angry, the arrogant, and the loud, and she's just shut up. She has nothing to say. I love the sound of Penina saying nothing. It's music. Every day is music. Now, the devil plays a zero-sum game with us. Did you know that? This is what we struggle against. He says, only one of us can win, and I'm stronger. So I win and you lose. And that's what we face. That's our loop that goes on and on and on and on and on. And like Hannah, we lose before we even start to try to play. Our strength is not enough to prevail. So this is what God did. 
God actually became like Hannah. Weak. Helpless. And the devil played his zero-sum game with Jesus. Had him nailed to the cross and says, he saved others. He can't save himself. If he saves himself, he can't save others. I win and you lose. Now, this is what it says in Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus poured out his soul to death. And the Father heard him and raised him from the dead. That's how we prevail. Through Jesus' superiority and strength. Now, we still have to deal with the devil, don't we? This game of he wins, we lose. And you know, there are times when I'm tempted to think, I will never break out of this. I'm doomed to loop forever. I'm never going to have enough money or opportunity or success or whatever it is that I think I need. That's not going to happen. And the devil wants me, I know, to believe that God is not going to help me. Because that's the worst position of all, isn't it? If God doesn't help you, what is going to help you? But you know, we prevail the same way Hannah did, through Jesus. And we pray just as Jesus prayed. Not by will, but yours be done. Now, it seems like we have to come to a breaking point where we say, okay, this is either going to get better or get worse, and it's my time, and this is where I break down and say, God, you know, whatever it takes, whatever it takes for you to prevail in my life, please do it, even if I die. And you know, God will do that. He will hear your prayer. Because this chapter is not about how to have children, if you can't have children. It's about presenting yourself before God and God enabling His will for you. Now, He knows what that will for you is. And you can pray right now, God, your will, not mine. Please help me. So life is spiritual. It's all spiritual. 
There's no place where God can't work. Like, sorry, this is secular. You're going to have to move out of here. Everything is spiritual. And God can work in everything. Just think about the stuff you're going through. You think, ah, this is practical. It's not spiritual. What does God know about selling a flat? What does God know about getting me a job? What does God know about how I'm supposed to live my life? What can he do for me? Well, see, he knows. And if he raised Jesus from the dead, he can figure out your scene, guaranteed. So you pour out your heart to him. You humble yourself before God, and he will lift you up. He will give grace to the humble. Everybody hear me? Okay, let's pray. It's amazing, Heavenly Father, that you brought Hannah to pray just the prayer you wanted to answer. Because you're in charge of her life. And you know what you wanted her to pray. So you brought her there to that point. And you know what you want each one of us to pray. How your will is to be done. And we want to trust in you. Help us to pour out our hearts before you. And we ask that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Change the things we can't. And change us. And we pray that you would make the devil of no effect. Tear down his work in our lives and in the lives of others around us. And please close his mouth entirely. Do a great work in us and through us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.